0: Jason brought us up just in the nick of time, and of course uh, today's show and this date is all about time—the passage of Father Time on Mother Earth. <laughs> this is Joe Jordan, your co-host for Planet Watch. This is show number fifty-one. You could call this uh, well the next one next week, January seventh. That'll be the number fifty-two. So that would be the New Year's Eve for Planet Watch. <laughs> but today's New Year's Eve in the United States, but it is already New Year's Day over much of the rest of the world. In fact, the break of New Year's Day, the stroke of midnight, came at 4 a.m. California time this morning, December 31st, 2017. That's when 2018 began. Just a few time zones to our west in the Pacific Ocean at the International Dateline on the west side of that time zone. That time zone is actually split into two halves with lots of zigs and zags and jags and jigs in there, too, to complicate things. But anyway, uh, on the east coast, um, well, uh, let's see, it was... uh, Uh, Midnight started at uh, 7 a.m. your time. So the New Year started at 7 a.m. East Coast, Eastern Standard Time. So anyway, a whole lot of the world's already partying. And that's kind of what we're going to do on this show here. Um, We are going to uh, do some retrospectives from uh, past issues, past episodes of this program. Um, I had a... (laughs) I had my computer all plugged in to play you some uh, excerpts. Oh, yeah, somehow it got knocked out while I was trying to find a wall plug for this computer. (laughs) All right, thanks, Jason. Mm -hmm. Um, So, okay, I think this computer is finally going to come alive now. Supposedly plugged in so I can play you some of these things. But I got lots of stuff to blab about while we are making all this stuff. Happened for some reason my computer's not coming on oh there it is it's finally it doesn't have a battery at least not a battery that works so I have to keep the computer plugged into the wall uh, this is modern technology for you okay so um, let us see the, I'm going to go ahead and well as soon as I <laughs> you just heard a whole lot of the Jupiter track of Gustav Holst great composer the, the symphony called The Planets And uh, I'm going to play a little bit more of that because it's going to be the very first time that we played that and that Rachel's voice... Oh, yeah, I was going to mention that everybody else on the Planet Watch team, my uh, illustrious, talented co-host Rachel Goodman, is taking a well-deserved vacation. And as you can tell, (laughs) I'm basically on vacation today, too. We're we're partying on this show here, but we're going to do some serious stuff and some fun stuff. And... um, You know, I've actually got that track queued up here if you want me to... Oh, good, 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 good. Thank you, you, Jason. And then later for the... I've got eight tracks to play here. So it would be the one that's labeled PWR for Planet Watch Radio underscore NYE for New Year's Year's Eve hyphen zero one dot MP3. So this is going to be the first radio show we ever did back on January 15th of this year. So go ahead and fire that away, Jason. I'm going to talk over one section of it just a few seconds after the beginning. Thanks. Okay, let me see if I could uh, get that going right here. Uh, So, yeah, you're listening to Planet Watch on KSEO. Thanks for bearing with us today. Thanks to Jason, as Uh, always. Here we go.
1: program about cutting-edge science responding to the big challenges of our day coming up this hour an interview with oceanographer and renowned researcher gary griggs i'm rachel ann goodman and i'm sitting here with joe jordan hi joe
0: hi everybody
1: Great to have you. And this is the Maiden Voyage of Planet Watch. A program we hope will be entertaining, enlightening, and informing, and very important to your survival. Mm-hmm. So put it on a note on your calendar to tune in every Sunday at two PM for Planet Watch. And we're very excited to have Tommy Martin as well, our intern here in the studio. Hi, Tommy. <laughs> Hi, Rachel. Great to have you. Great, Great to have you. And be here. and we will be taking questions as we go along.
0: Via the new Uh, email address radio planet watch at gmail.com it's not all that new but it's changed from back in last january radio planet watch
1: book page planet watch radio go check us out there and uh, let's just quickly introduce ourselves and tell why we're doing this and then we're going to jump right into some news roundups about the science of the day so joe you want to start
0: Well, okay, yeah, we kind of want to initiate or at least contribute to uh, what I'm calling a micro enterprise of media revolution to, uh, you know, the corporate mass media are just not doing the job of getting the truth out there on things about the world uh, and including the physical world, the earth and, you know, the universe even. And so we want to uh, get folks jazzed and educated and, you know, activated about doing things about these huge problems that are staring us in the face, such as what I'm calling climate chaos. It's it's a big problem, and, we, and there are people just screaming for solutions, you know, for ideas of what are we going to do? What do we do now? <laughs> so that's uh, pathways to possible solutions is what a big focus of this show is about.
1: And um, I come to this from a radio background. I also was part of a show called The DNA Files, which talked about genetics. It was a five-part documentary series that was on NPR a while back. And when I was a managing editor of that series, I got to talk to scientists all over the world, and and find out what cutting edge things they were doing. And that was a little while ago now and everything's changed, you know. So it's our job in a way, I think, to keep people up on the latest science because it is moving, especially in the field of climate science and oceanography. These things are going to affect our lives in our lifetimes. And so keeping up on not only what the cutting edge science is, what we're learning, but what we might do and what, what solutions are being discovered uh, is a great service, I think, to the listener. So that's that's why I'm doing this. I also teach journalism at Cabrillo, so that's why Tommy's here. Besides the fact that he's our intern, I think he's interested in this topic, right?
0: Yeah, I'm really excited to be a part of the solutions that Joe is talking about and being a part of the show that's discussing them. <laughs> and I'll just add that in order to get at solutions, you have to know what you're up against. We we really have to come to grips with what's going on and and you know, the science and nature and the cool, fun, interesting stuff behind you know, problems. So, uh, as Rachel writes here, let's start by saying unequivocally that the Earth is round. And <laughs> Sorry so. Sorry,
1: you flat earthers. We're going to be shocking you with some facts during this program and some
0: cosmic relief. We're going to bring in cosmic relief here. Yeah. Jason, hold on. Don't don't play the next one yet. I'm gonna sort of talk in between them. But hang hang with me. I can eventually drive from my computer here, but I gotta fire up iTunes first. That takes about fourteen seconds. Anyway, so we're gonna play clip number two out of eight in a minute, but Uh, I also, uh, I mentioned Rachel a minute ago, and thanks to her for uh, making this such a wonderful program uh, all this past year. And also to our interns, uh, you heard Tommy there, Tommy Martin. He was our first (laughs) good old intern uh, student at uh, Cabrillo College of Journalism, one of Rachel's students some of the time. And then uh, somewhat after Tommy came on, we were joined by Caroline King. And she'll be back with us, I trust, sometimes during this next semester. And we've had a couple of other people who are going to be joining us. And one of my uh, illustrious uh, prize physics students at Gavilan College, which is a community college over near the town of Gilroy, (laughs) kind of famous for garlic. Well, the town, not the college. Uh, Sanaya uh, is uh, helping us out uh, kind of in a mentorship relationship. So thanks to all of you. Hope you are listening either now live or later via archive, which all of you can do, by the way. Uh, We actually have a brand new um, website that's still under construction. But its name is much more intuitive than the old Z, as in zebra, zbsradio.com. You can still listen to this show live anywhere in the world and get all the archives via that website, zbsradio.com. But our new website is Planet Watch Radio dot something either com or org check them both out planet watch radio that's much more intuitive um and by the way as uh we heard rachel say there uh we have a facebook page we've had it pretty much all along planet watch radio you can go there join in you know like us whatever um rachel mentioned something on that last clip which i just wanted to um uh, amplify upon, namely, she mentioned this series, the DNA, the DNA files, the DNA files. There were actually two sets of those over a period of several years. She and I worked together back in 2001 on the first one. Uh, it was a set of several programs, each an hour long. She was the managing editor for the whole series, and I did a one five-minute introductory piece to a whole hour-long show on the origins of life. It was called something like uh, Life, How to Make a Cosmic (laughs) Omelette. And I was actually sent with a professional sound recordist to the hot springs in the back country of Yellowstone National Park to study these areas of boiling sulfuric acid where life evolved in places like that. Microbes that could stand withstand extreme heat and acidity. And they're called extremophiles or hyper hyperthermophiles. And anyway, that, that little piece is on the DNA files um, from 2001. If anybody's interested, uh, get in touch with me at radioplanetwatch at gmail.com. And I can send you a link. So um, let's see. Now, this next clip... He's still with us there, Jason. Let me just introduce it. Our very first guest on that first show that you just heard the first part of was a local world-class luminary, oceanographer and geologist uh, at the university here, UC Santa Cruz. He runs the Long Marine Lab, Gary Griggs. And we talked with him for, Jesus a good 45 minutes, and I've just excerpted a few little bits of what he said with us and also some stuff we said after we said goodbye to him on that show. And then I'm going to move on to a couple of other shows, and then there's a whole lot of other stuff about New Year's Eve and the astronomy and geophysics of years and cycles. (laughs) So Jason fired up with clip number two here. Thanks.
1: First kind of general question is, how fast is the ocean rising now as compared to what it was doing hundred years ago, if you
2: could answer <laughs> that question. That's a really good starting point. And these are things we can measure so we know pretty well. And the short answer is that it's probably rising about twice as fast as it did in the last century. And and I could start with saying um, the shoreline is one of the most important lines on the planet. In large part because most of the world's people live close to it. But it's moving. It's moving towards us and it's moving towards us because sea level is rising and it's rising because the planet's getting warmer and ice is melting and all ice melts at 32 degrees Fahrenheit. It doesn't matter whether you're a Democrat or Republican.
1: The ice is nonpartisan is what you're saying? Very (laughs)
2: nonpartisan. It's
1: only response to one pressure and that's not the voters. (laughs) Just 32 degrees, that's it. That's physics. So physics doesn't lie. Um, Of those contributors, Um, Is the ice melting the fastest um, contributor to sea level rise?
2: Historically, over much of the last century, it was believed to be what we call thermal expansion, or as the water heats up, it expands. and That happens in your water heater. But now, more recent measurements suggest uh, that perhaps two-thirds of that increase is due to ice melt. So we've got some... Several really large reservoirs of ice that are melting at rates that are sort of unprecedented in recent times.
0: Okay, that was the end of that clip. Um, You know, before I go on to the next one, I want to do a little bit of retrospective just to our last show, which was on Christmas Eve. I thought that was a very special show. One thing that would have been super special to do, which we just forgot, ran out of time. But Rachel and I had talked about playing this wonderful song by John McCutcheon. Um, that was written about this amazing incident that happened during World War I, I believe it was World War I, where both sides on Christmas Eve came out of their trenches and ventured toward each other and uh, exchanged you know pictures of their families back home and spent an evening you know in human fellowship in the midst of an intense war. John McCutcheon wrote a beautiful song about that. And at some point, (laughs) uh, last weekend would have been a good time to play it. Uh, But this reminds me a prospective of what's coming up here shortly. I actually brought in with me, uh, Jason, maybe later during one of the longer clips here. um, I have the CD from which we played a little bit last weekend of Rachel's wonderful song, Elk River Blues. And on that same CD is another song that she has written. Not only the lyrics, but also the melody. Uh, it's called uh, Waiting for the Rain, which is actually very appropriate to today's date because, hey, we, here we are at the threshold of a new year. And we, especially in California, where the state is still burning up, and we are so sorry for all the people who have lost loved ones and homes. Uh, Recently and some months ago. But anyway, uh, you know, this state's burning up. The country has lots of weather and climate problems, and we don't know here on the West Coast whether, how much this coming year is going to bring rain. So we are waiting for the rain. So hopefully we will get time at the end of this show, and if not this time, well, maybe next week, we'll play you Rachel's song, Waiting for the Rain. But speaking of water and things... (laughs) The next clip here, in our, it was from our interview with Gary Griggs. It's the last part I'll play from that show. It starts with a riddle. So, Jason, you ready? Thanks a lot. Well, my students, I ask them this question, and the answers I get are pretty interesting. I say, why is the sky blue? The reason I bring that up here is because the answer I most often get is... It's reflecting off the ocean. It's the reflection off the ocean. So uh, we can all think about this a little bit right now, but Gary, what would you say? Well, i say it has to do with
2: how the molecules in the atmosphere reflect, absorb, transmit
0: various wavelengths of light, scatter the light. Yeah, the way I put it is, well, let's see now. Uh, There are days when the ocean isn't blue, it's gray. Uh, Well, but you could still say, well, but the sky reflects the ocean, too, because on those days, the sky is gray. (laughs) But is it more reasonable to assume that the sky changes its mind than the ocean? Yeah, I think so. (laughs) The sky, we know why it changes colors. Why would the ocean do that? So anyway, it's an interesting little thing. Are
1: we going to answer that at the end of the show?
0: Oh, we did already. Well, you know, they call it Rayleigh scattering, named after a guy named Rayleigh, R-A-Y-L-E-I-G-H. It's that the molecules are so small of nitrogen and other constituents of the atmosphere that they scatter mostly the blue and purple and green light, and a little bit of all the colors, the red and the yellow. Sky blue is a mixture of all the colors, but mostly the blue shortwave end of the spectrum.
1: Does that explain why your shirt is so incredibly blue?
0: Oh, yeah. It's wearing
1: a sky blue shirt. (laughs)
0: It's called a Rayleigh shirt.
1: Yeah.
0: (laughs) Uh, <laughs> yeah. Plop an ice cube oh, into a and glass of water. And of, geez, water. Hang on. And of course, that, that's a different clip. We've got to start that one in a minute. That shirt, uh, I think that <laughs> just by accident, I think that's the shirt I have on now. It's actually got uh, leaves of a plant whose Latin name is Monstera. I'm not sure what the common name is, but the background is pretty sky blue. Um, I don't know if anybody can see me. I don't know if we're actually on the uh, visual video live (laughs) feed now. Oh, okay. All right. Well, here it is. (laughs) Sky blue. Rayleigh shirt as Gary Griggs uh, uh, eclept it. That's a great old word. Y-C-L-E-P-T. That means named. (laughs) Look it up. Or if you can. Um, so, okay, I'm going to move... Well, let's see here. Got to... Uh, back again to last week, we had our wonderful Norwegian friends on during the hour just before Christmas in their time zone. And they told us, uh, I asked them, how do you say Happy New Year? We got the God Jul, G-O-D-J-U-L for Merry Christmas. But the Happy New Year, um, I'm not sure that all got out right. It's G-O-D-T... And then N Y T T and O R. Now that's not an O like our O. It's actually an A with a little O on top of it. <laughs> it's a letter that we don't have in our alphabet, but it's pronounced OR. <laughs> so got nit. Or, (laughs) That's Happy New Year in Norwegian. Um, You know, loose ends. You could almost (laughs) make that another name for this show. Uh, Lots of loose ends, which I kind of want to tie up some of uh, here at the end of this year so we can move on next week. So that was one of them. And let's see here. Um... Well, I'm just going to give you a little report. I was out riding my bicycle around last night. It's sort of high clouds, but filtered sun here on the West Coast in Santa Cruz today. Last night, I love it when it's like that, when there's a nearly full moon. I was out on my bicycle riding around out in the country, and I I came up with a new word. I was (laughs) moon-chanted. Moon-chanted. And tonight the moon's going to be even fuller. And in fact, tomorrow night, New Year's Day, for much of the world, and in fact, exactly at... 6.24 p.m. California time, that's 9.24 p.m. East Coast time, guess what's going to happen? It'll be full moon. It'll be the first full moon of the month, and since it's on the first, guess what? That means there will be another full moon at the end of January. That will be a so-called blue moon, but not only that, it's going to turn red. There's going to be a total eclipse of the super Moon. That's a blue moon, a red, white, and blue moon on January 31st, but more later on all that. Maybe it's actually January 30th. Uh, Anyway, you can look it up, but it'll be the second uh, full moon in a month. So uh, tonight and then tomorrow night, uh, look for the dark patterns on the white moon, uh, the frozen lava. They make, well, they make what everybody calls the man in the moon, but even more common cultural imagery in the world is the rabbit in the moon. I call it the bunny in the moon. You can't miss the two ears. It's a left profile of a bunny facing to the left. So check that out. Said that before, but hey, you gotta gotta go find that if you haven't yet. So let's see here, Jason. I think it's time for some more tape. Uh, this one's going to start off, if you can rewind back to the beginning that we were starting to play there, it starts off with a little experiment for you. <laughs> uh, plop an ice cube into a glass of water. And, of course, that's going to make the water level go up. Mark the water level with a Sharpie or whatever or just a piece of masking tape. And then put a couple ice cubes in, whatever, two or three, just so long as they aren't touching the bottom of the glass. They're all floating. Mark that new water level. Go away for an hour. Let it melt. And here's the question. What happens to the water level? And the answer, there's three possible answers. It could go down, it could go up, or it could stay the same. And roughly, uh, among fairly well-educated students of mine and the general public, there's about a third, a third, a third. You know, the answers, all three answers are about equally represented. So you do the experiment, and we can talk about that on a future show and how it relates to sea level rise and climate change and so on. Yeah, am I supposed to give the answer right now? No. No. Everybody should do this. This is your homework. <laughs> this is your Aww, homework for next, next week. Isn't um, it
1: funny? A lot of people think, of, oh, no, a science show. I don't know anything, so I shouldn't listen. But actually, this is science everyone can do. An ice cube in a cup <laughs> and a marker. In your kitchen. You can do this at a party. And you could even make it like your martini. Does it count?
0: Hmm? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, and you Margarita? can do it in salt water, too. You can do it in salt water. So. <laughs> um, but um, so now here's... Um, The phenomenon of the week, the fabled green flash. I mean, today here in Santa Cruz, on the edge of the continent, beautiful, clear day. I'm going to be going out there just around 5 p.m. on West Cliff Drive and looking for the sunset. And um, as the sun goes down, just the last second or so, the top edge of the sun as it's going down will momentarily turn Brilliant emerald green, if conditions are just right. You know, if you have clouds and stuff in the way, it's not going to happen. But today is a day when it might. And uh, it actually is visible at sunrise, too. And that's even a better time to look at it, because then your eyes aren't playing tricks on you. you. You know, you have to make sure you're looking away. At sunset, don't just be staring at it and expecting it to turn green, because your eyes are going to be shot to hell. <laughs> you, you need to keep looking away and looking away and sort of keeping it in the corner of your eye until you know that it's only a couple seconds left. And it will turn green. Huh. It's and not really
1: a flash, though, is it?
0: Well, it, just... well it, I mean, in that it lasts for maybe a second. Now, up in Alaska and Norway, higher latitudes, it's more like a green flash. Because <laughs> the sun's going down at a more oblique angle to the horizon. Have you seen it, no. Tommy?
1: Have you ever seen that?
0: I've tried multiple times. Well, but you I've should never come seen... out with me on Westcliff Drive. Yeah, I'll have to go with you some sometime. People
1: <laughs> were making fun of me when I was trying to capture it by a camera. They said you can't. A lot
0: of people <laughs> think that it's a big flash on the sky. The whole sky lights up green.
1: They think it's a hoax perpetrated by um, scientists. <laughs> in order to get lots of money that's <laughs> what i hear so we
0: <laughs> and, and the green for the green, green. i to yeah. tell you about the planets i mean the name planets comes from the greek planeti the wanderers they were these bright lights in the sky that move around relative to the background stars yeah okay so there we go with that one and um Something else about uh, the moon. <laughs> uh, you know, this, this term supermoon has kind of been coined, I don't know, recently. The media has gone crazy with it. It's just, here. here's the deal. Our orbit around the sun is not circular. It's slightly elliptical. And in fact, we're coming up on our closest approach to the sun for the whole year. Uh, like January 3rd or 4th, we're at what's called perihelion, closest to the sun, helios, helion. And we're actually about 4 million miles closer to the sun than we are in early July when we're farthest from the sun. I say, well, wait a minute, it's, it's winter. How can we be close to the sun? Well, for one thing, it's summer in the southern hemisphere. <laughs> so, you know, the, the distance to the sun for this planet doesn't have much to do with the seasons. It's more a matter of the tilt of our axis and so on. But anyway, so when you have a combination of us being closest to the sun... And which happens once a month, the moon being closest to the Earth. You know, every year the the Earth has a closest approach to the sun, but every month, every month, the moon is closest to the Earth. That's called perigee. You know, like geography, geologic Earth. So perigee, moon being closest to the Earth. So we have us being close to the sun, and us and the moon being close to the sun, and the moon is closest to us. Then you get extreme tides. That's what I'm driving at here, folks. The king tides. That's another term that has, I think, kind of only fairly recently been coined. The king tides. The best king tides of the year are upon us. Check your tide tables just the next few days. Like the 1st and 2nd of January, anywhere in the world that is near oceans... Go and observe some amazing highs and lows. And that's because the moon is unusually close to us while we are unusually close to the sun at the same time. And so this business about a supermoon means that, okay, since the moon's a little closer to us than it is other times of the (laughs) month, it looks a little bigger. And so it's a little brighter. But um, all but probably the most trained, experienced observers. And I can't even say I can really notice this. I mean, you can convince yourself, oh, yeah, it looks really bright tonight. Well, hey, all full moons look pretty bright if you've got a nice clear sky. But look for that bunny on the moon, by the way. Yeah. So, anyway, we've got the king tides coming up. And, um, well, okay, uh, on to more science uh, fun. I am going to queue up. I'm going to drive this one now. Here we go. Got another clip from, um, I forget what show this was. It was either, I think it was maybe, I don't remember what show this was. It was just Rachel and me talking maybe with Tommy. Here you go. I'm not hearing anything. Uh, Oh, I got a... I am not hearing anything. Uh, Well, let's see. (laughs) Oh, we got to... Okay, here we go, Jason to the rescue yet again. Here we go. Last time. How about the word environmentalist? You know, oh, I gotta turn up the volume on my computer. Forgot about that. Well, I'm, I'm gonna. Rewind. You can look up the rewind. Webster's definition. Uh, here we go. I think my computer's yeah, volume was kind of limited. Okay. So here we go again, folks. Let me let me just rewind this file. Sorry for the rocky business here. This is a. Okay. 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 Percent last time. Percent. How about that the, word the word environmentalist? We're the weak. You know, environmentalist. Scientists, scientists, And supporters of science and the environment. Well, you can look up the Webster's definition, but it keeps using the word environment. You know, somebody who's concerned about or cares about the environment, but then what's the environment? And, uh, well, my definition, my down-home, you know, simple down-to-earth definition is um, somebody who doesn't want to foul our nest. How about that? Somebody who doesn't want to foul our nest. Now, that leads to the question, is anybody out there not an environmentalist? You'll find lots of people who say, oh, those damned environmentalists. But, uh, well, we're all environmentalists. Nobody wants to foul their nest. Now, this brings to mind a funny story from back here in Santa Cruz, from which we're broadcasting this show. Back in the 70s, when I first came out here from Virginia as a graduate student... There was this oddball fad that seemed to be happening. You'd go around neighborhoods, and there were all these jars of water on people's lawns. And I wondered for a long, long time what this was all about. And uh, I don't know. The the, the word on the street was that people put those there because they don't want dogs to come and pee on their lawns because dogs won't pee near their water source doesn't really make sense to me. I think dogs are smart enough to not think that a jar of water on somebody's yard is their water source. But anyway, that persisted for, you know, a couple of years. And then now I don't see jars of water sitting on people's lawns anymore. But it's a funny little bit of history. Well, anyway, so we're all environmentalists, though. None of us want a foul or a nest. So, hey, that brings us together. Okay.
1: Well, that's a big relief. And finally, <laughs> another perhaps non-scientific. This is a science show. And sometimes we debunk certain things that feel like science to us. And in this case, ground.
3: Day. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah.
1: <laughs> um, is it really true that if a ground dog comes out of his nest and uh, casts a shadow, certain things will be sure to happen in the weather? How does he have that much power? I want to know. And where does that come from, Joe?
0: Well, there's this great quote um, I just ran across. Uh, what was it? Um, only in America. <laughs> wait, for where is it? Wait, for wait for it. Wait for it. Where is it? Where is it? Ah. No. Wait for it.
1: Should we, should we leave the somewhere. suspense? It's coming. The end of the show? Oh no,
0: here we are. <laughs> the tiny print. Only in America do we accept weather predictions from a rodent, but deny climate change evidence from scientists. <laughs> and uh, just to tell you about Groundhog Day, by the way, it's a cross quarter day. It's a day midway between a solstice and an equinox. Mm-hmm. Halloween is another one. If you think about it, so there are four cross quarter days, which you know cross the quarters that the sol- solstices and equinoxes divide the calendar into. Mm. So that's kind of cool.
1: Great. Well, Very thank you. Cool. Thank you for those words of wisdom. Now we know more <laughs> than we did earlier about Groundhog Day.
0: Okay. All right. Um, uh, this is the iTunes thing where the next thing just starts up automatically. Nice music. Sort of an accordion or something or other there. Um, oh yeah, i got to tell you a little more about this eclipse that's coming up at the end of this month, which is going to be the red, white, and blue moon. It'll be a blue moon because it'll be the second full moon in a month. Total, or any eclipse of the moon always happens at the phase of full moon when the moon is as close as it gets for that month to being directly opposite the sun. Uh, This one will be total. It will be visible, um, let's see, to us on the west coast here, the moon will already be pretty low in the west. (laughs) What does that mean? <laughs> what time do you have to drag yourself out of bed? <laughs> kind of in the wee hours. It'll be a oh, dark 30, dawn patrol kind of thing. And I'm sorry, back there on the East Coast, the moon, it will already be set at full moon. The, the full moon sets at sunrise. And so you're going to have uh, daylight. You know, it'll already be day. But here on the West Coast and over in Hawaii and over in uh, Eastern Asia, we'll be able to see the total eclipse of the moon. And uh, you can look forward to probably once it gets really deeply eclipsed and total, the moon will turn reddish. And that's an interesting thing because the sun's light is completely blocked from directly illuminating the moon. So how does any color, in particular that reddish or copper color, get onto the moon? Well, if you think about it, if you were on the moon facing the earth with the sun behind the silhouette of the earth you would see the sunsets and sunrises all the way around the circumference of the world. Lit up, bright gold, orange, red. That's the sunsets and sunrises of the whole world. That light is indirectly cast onto the moon, making it reddish during a total eclipse. That is cool. So, uh, during part of the eclipse, it'll be white. Before and after the eclipse, it'll be completely white. And because it's the second (laughs) moon... Full moon of the month, uh, they call it a blue moon. So, hey, a red, white, and blue moon. Coming up uh, one of the last couple days of January. I'm sure you'll see it in the newspapers, and you'll hear it on this show, the precise times and everything, later. Okay. Well, let's see. I think I feel another clip coming on here. Uh, This was from our show that was on Super Bowl Sunday, (laughs) February 5th. An interview with Franz Lanting. Oh, it looks like Jason's ready to fire it up. This is number, uh, I believe we're down to number six now.
3: Thanks. Up and down the uh, Antarctic Peninsula. So uh, climate change is very visible down there.
1: You um, studied penguins. You you photographed the emperor penguins. I remember interviewing you about that quite a while ago when you first went. So this is, uh, it's sobering to have that much of a perspective, I guess, on what it's doing to the creatures that are living there and their ability to survive.
3: Yes, and since you mentioned emperor penguins, you yeah, know they're totally dependent on sea ice. They never touch um, bare land with their feet. They come out of the water at the end of the Antarctic summer, and then they walk towards the edge of Antarctica, and they form their colonies on sea ice, and they have to fledge their chicks before the sea ice melts at the end of the summer so as the sea ice begins to retreat they may be in big trouble
1: Mm. you um you dedicated your voyage i think or at least uh, modeled it somewhat hopefully not specifically exactly off of shackleton's expedition yet he would have found a different climate would he not uh, than the one you found in your latest trip
3: there Indeed, uh, the famous uh, endurance expedition led by Sir Ernest Shackleton took place a 100 years ago. And one of our journeys this past season was uh, was meant to uh, go in his footsteps. We revisited some of the locations associated with the expedition. And I had actually brought uh, cameras along... Uh, They were exactly the same that were used a hundred years ago during the expedition by the photographer Frank Hurley. I wanted to see for myself what it was like to photograph with the same equipment in the same places. And that was a very interesting experience.
1: Absolutely. I was amazed. I read the book Endurance. And I was amazed how much they documented with photographs their whole ordeal. And what an ordeal I mean,
3: yes, yes, and that was entirely due to the, to the ingenuity of Frank Hurley, an Australian photographer who had um, state of the art equipment. But after the ship sank, he was down to just one camera and four rolls of film. And the rest is history, as they say. So I went down with the same camera and also with a couple of rolls of film and found Hurley's footsteps in a number of places.
0: Okay, Jason, I'm going to do the next two just back-to-back, except I'm going to just say the last thing I'm going to say for this hour right now. And that is, hey, you know what? In New York City, they have that falling ball on, to, you know, on top of Times Square. Well, you, you can be the smartest person at your New Year's Eve party tonight and actually know what that's about. Turns out that back in the day, they couldn't get reliable clocks on ships because of all the rocking of the ocean and everything that just clock technology hadn't advanced. And you need clocks to know your longitude. And There's a whole book about that. And so ships would every now and then get close to the coast where they knew that there was a tall building or an observatory where, which would drop a ball that was visible from miles away at 12 noon exactly. Uh, and this, there were various places in the world where they could do that, and they could temporarily synchronize their seaborne clocks that way. That's what that falling ball in New York City on New Year's Eve was all about, the time ball. Okay, so we're, we're just about out of time, but I've got two more clips, and I'm just going to run them back-to-back back here, and we'll see how much we can get of the last one. Thanks, Jason. And a shout-out to our wonderful engineer, Jason, back there, who always bails us out of all kinds of last-minute trouble here on these shows.
1: (laughs) Right, but nothing like the Shackleton Expeditions. Right. Nothing like those. Uh, They make everything seem easy compared to what they went through. So some more um, stories from up there. I'd love to hear um, how you get up there. You know, what is your vehicle of choice to get through the ice? and? And isn't it still quite dangerous, even though we imagine that it being ice-free certain parts of the year, there's certainly incredibly inclement weather. Tell us a little bit about what you saw, not just through your lens, but through your eyes.
3: Well, we started our journey in uh, Patagonia where we visited um, some remote areas that are uh, in the process of uh, becoming national parks. And that's a very interesting uh, private conservation initiative that's been spearheaded by uh, by an American couple that went down there in the 1990s, uh, Doug and Chris Tompkins. And uh, they've, they're making a huge difference down in Patagonia in uh, wilderness areas in Chile and Argentina. Uh, Which will be turned over to the country's national park services, so that they can be held in public trust forever and ever. Uh, So we flew down there, and then locally you get around by uh, by vehicle. But in order to get to the Falkland Islands or to South Georgia, there's only one way to go, and uh, that is by ship. Uh, South Georgia is a very remote uh, part. Of the world. Yeah, there is no airstrip there. You cannot fly there. So the only way to get there is by ship, and it takes several days from uh, the southernmost port in the world, Ushuaia, uh, to get there. And the weather is very, very, very stormy because all the storms get pushed through uh, Cape Horn and so you're facing some rough seas, and that's also what uh, Shackleton was faced with when he had to return from Antarctica to South Georgia.
1: Yes, he did, and um, I remember them calling that the Roaring Forty. I was down in Peninsula Valdez in Argentina, and it yeah. was the, the wind just kind of never stopped blowing. Um, so did you see icebergs? When? How far out did you have to be to start seeing the big you know, giant ship-sized and continent-sized icebergs that start to show up in some of your photographs?
3: Uh, You need to be south of South Georgia Island to get into the latitudes of the 60s. And when you're uh, getting to the peninsula, you're you're surrounded by ice. Uh, But we also went into the Weddell Sea, which is a little bit to the east of the peninsula. And half of the Weddell Sea is still frozen. But uh, because of climate change uh, bigger and bigger stretches of open water form in summer and uh, one of the more spectacular things that we found were the remnants of uh, one of the largest icebergs to ever break off from Antarctica scientists referred to it as B-15 and that iceberg was the size of the island of Jamaica or a quarter of the size of the Netherlands where I'm from originally that icebergs now broken apart uh, into what are still spectacularly big tabular icebergs but uh, it's an indication of things to come.
0: Okay, we got one big long clip left, which is going to take us right up to the end of the show. In fact, it'll probably, <laughs> we'll just have to tie up more loose ends next week. Uh, but just an introduction to this last one, uh, it's mostly banter between Rachel and me at the end of that show with Tom, uh, with um, <laughs> Franz Lanting. We have some wonderful, amazing music by Tom Lehrer. And his name got misspelled. It's L-E-H-R-E-R. Tom Lair. Get his stuff anytime. And also, I talk about this big thing that was coming up there on February 5th in this country. Uh, that was the Super Bowl. And, and finally, uh, I don't think anybody can be a potato pan. <laughs> Tune in now, and you'll find out what the heck I'm talking about. Here we go. Thanks, everybody. Happy New Year.
1: I did get to Patagonia and see 500,000 um, small pygmy penguins and that was enough to last me a lifetime it was quite an amazing experience i'm jealous because to travel like that for your work is truly what i always wanted to do and until yeah. i had a family <laughs> i even brought my son there with me to patagonia one time when he was eight so he'll remember that for life
0: the one the one time i saw penguins was uh, in tasmania australia as they have, I think it's the fairy penguins. They're little miniature ones. These
1: sound like donkeys. So imagine 500,000 <laughs> donkeys braying and nesting under the ground. It was pretty pretty astounding. So Franz Lanting, one of the great treasures of California, and we're lucky to have him living in our neck of the woods, wherever you're listening. We hope you get to see him in person sometime. So as we do it every... Uh, last 15 minutes of the show we like to bring you uh lore quizzes and um
0: oddball stuff
1: strange wacky stuff from the (laughs) science world that maybe you didn't know so joe's gonna we're gonna let him loose here a little bit um take the leash off
0: (laughs) (laughs) got a few little Puzzles and quizzes and fun facts and a party fact for the big thing that's about to happen uh, in the world, at least in the United States. Um, but first, okay, symmetry is an important, uh, profound uh, aspect of the world, of science and math. And, hey, you know what a palindrome is? <laughs> a palindrome is, you know, just a set of letters, uh, ideally in a word or even a sentence that uh, are spelled the same forwards as backwards. And I got tons of them. And I'll just do two quick ones for you. Oh, oh, I have one too. Oops. Oh, okay. Rachel's got one too. I am
1: Um, a potato pan, Otis.
0: I am a potato pan...
1: Otis, O T I S. No, a potato.
0: Yeah. Pan. Is that right? Is that right? Wait,
1: that. I don't think work. that. <laughs> oh. I don't think that. Sit that on works. a potato pan. Otis. Oh,
0: sit on a potato Get pan, right. Otis. There you go. Okay, <laughs>
1: so you can think backwards and forwards. That's really good. And there's the man a plan Panama.
0: <laughs> uh, a man a plan a canal. Panama. Okay. I got two things to tell you about that. Apparently, in 1956, that was known as the longest yet discovered palindrome <laughs> a man, a plant, a canal, Panama. And I just have to say, since I'm a baseball nut, here's the big football day, but I'm a baseball nut, used to play a lot of baseball. 1956 should mean. A lot to anybody who cares and knows a lot about baseball. Namely, it was the year that the only perfect game ever thrown in a World Series happened by the New York Yankees' Don Larson. It was in 1956. Oh. Okay, so back to palindromes. Uh, now, it's Sunday, so hey, you know, we, we should have a sort of religious-sounding one. So, and it's also a nature-sounding one. Do geese see God? <laughs> That's a palindrome. Do geese see God?
1: I always wondered that it kept me up at night. <laughs> what about you, <laughs>
0: Tommy? Did you know that? I yeah, I was you, always wondered.
1: Do you think they do? And, and
0: then <laughs> and then one last one. And it means nothing. Well, it means whatever you want to make it mean. It's may a moody baby doom a yam. <laughs> so you know the yam like a sweet potato kind of thing. May a moody baby doom a yam? <laughs> okay, so there you go. Um oh I'll give you one It'll
1: have to make sense. I'll
0: give you one last one. All the other ones you have to ignore the spaces, but here's one where even with the spaces included, it's perfectly symmetrical, and you know how you have the Shah of Iran, S-H-A-H, okay, so it's the plural of that, so it's no evil Shahs live on, (laughs) no evil Shahs live on, okay, well, uh, here we go, now, it's time for this week's party fact. You're about, you're all at parties probably right now. Hopefully you'll at least hear the archive of this show after the big game is over. Um, It actually doesn't start for another, uh, you know, almost three quarters of an hour. But anyway, look, you're probably gonna be uncapping a bunch of bottled beverages at various points, you know, soda bottles or beer bottles. Here's a really cool observation to make. You need to be in good light and you gotta look kind of quick. You uncork or uncap, let's say a beer bottle. In decent lighting, look into the neck right away and what are you going to see? You're going to see fog. You're going to see some fog in the neck every time. What's happening, believe it or not, is that that sudden decompression lowers the temperature in there to minus 40 degrees which causes a cloud to form instantly. Now, you might think, well, is it centigrade or Fahrenheit? Well, just another party fact for you. Minus 40 is the number which is the same in both centigrade and Fahrenheit. So I don't have to say whether it's minus 40C or minus 40F. I have
1: a question. <laughs> if you stick your finger in the top of the bottle while you right as soon as you open it, will your finger
0: frostbite? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> See, your finger has so much more thermal mass than that little thin <laughs> condensed vapor there that you just burn it off immediately. But yeah. good question. Good, good thinking there. <laughs>
1: Would have been a fun party trick to get your friends <laughs> to phrase their fingers. And
0: one one last thing, by the way, about the Super Bowl. Um, Everybody's learned Roman numerals all of a sudden. It's Super Bowl LI, you know, 51. Well, look, LI is also the chemical symbol for the third most abundant element in the universe, namely lithium. And, um, you know, have you ever wondered why 50 in Roman numerals is L? I've wondered that, but I think I figured it out C as in century is roman numeral for 100 like well you take a C and draw it and cut the bottom half, and it's basically like a rounded L. So 50 is half of a 100, hence the L for Roman numeral for 50.
1: That's how so, they got
0: it? Yeah, I think so. Okay, so, we'll have
1: to check on that. And, and
0: by the way, someday, someday when we start playing clips of music on this show, a local hero here who everybody knows is Tom Lehrer, the great musician and songwriter. He wrote a whole song about the chemical elements, which is outrageous. And we, I,
1: I bet you Jason can find it. Jason could it. probably on,
0: scramble for it's that. It's on
1: YouTube, Tom but, uh, L-E-H-E-R, Tom Lehrer, The Elements Song. Yeah. You'll probably find
0: it. And uh, I got a little, while he's looking for that, I'll give you a little math teaser. Um, Now, I remember my dad asked me that, this one when I was in sixth grade. Uh, And, in fact, we were driving up Cadillac Mountain in Maine to see a total eclipse of the sun, which leads into another thing here, by the way, shortly. But uh, he said, okay, a fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight. And, of course, I immediately and maybe most of you are immediately going to say, what's its total weight is the the question. A fish weighs 20 pounds plus half its weight. How much does it weigh? Well, I'll just tell you, it's not 30 pounds. (laughs) If that's what you were thinking, it's not 30 pounds. Now, uh, I could leave this as homework for the next session. But why don't you, if, if you don't want to be given a hint that's going to really give it away, then close your ears for the next 10 seconds, okay? Here we go. Here's the other way of phrasing it. A fish weighs 20 pounds plus the other half of its weight. Hey, I think he's got the Elements song,
1: maybe. Okay, uh-huh, which part? Should we play it? Yeah, I'd love to. Uh, it's,
0: it's maybe kind of a long song, but, um, you know, uh, two, three, four minutes, I don't know. Let's, let's do it. Li- okay, as long as lithium is it. in it's there somewhere. Like <laughs> Thanks, Jason. Let's
1: see if we can get it up on the console All right.
4: <laughs> Wait, there's antimony arsenic aluminum selenium and hydrogen and oxygen and nitrogen and rhenium and nickel neodymium neptunium germanium and iron americium ruthenium uranium europium zirconium lutetium vanadium and lanthanum and osmium and astatine and radium and gold protactinium and indium and gallium and iodine and thorium and thulium and thallium There's yttrium, eterbium, actinium, rubidium, and boron, gadolinium, niobium, iridium, and strontium, and silicon, and silver, and samarium, and bismuth, bromine, lithium, beryllium, and barium. He said lithium. He said Lithium. and helium and hafnium and erbium and phosphorus and francium and fluorine and terbium and manganese and mercanium molybdenum magnesium dysprosium and scandium and cerium and cesium and lead praseodymium and platinum plutonium palladium promethium potassium polonium and tantalum technetium titanium tellurium <sighs> and cadmium and calcium and chromium and curium there's sulfur californium and fermium berkelium and also mendelevium einsteinium nobelium and argon krypton and radoncine and rhodium and chlorine carbon cobalt copper tungsten tin and sodium are the only ones of which the news has come to Harvard. And there may be many others, but they haven't been discovered. (laughs) Hey, you know, we, uh, we're lucky to have
0: uh, met Tom Lair. He, uh, for many years, taught half the year at Harvard, which you mentioned in that song, and the other half the year he w- would teach uh, here in Santa Cruz. And uh, he, I think he still lives here at least part of the time. Yeah. <laughs> Did, great. Were
1: those really all elements? mandolenium? Really?
0: Oh. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think he snuck one
0: in. I, I thought I heard some
1: Didn't you hear a few funny heard
0: ones there. But, um. <laughs> <laughs> but
1: that's a great way if you have a student of you know chemistry to get them to memorize it. There is a, a lot about our brain that if you put it in a song, Mm-hmm. <laughs> then they'll remember it better. So I, I noticed he took three really big breaths,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and even then he looked, sounded like he's about to pass out. Brilliant from Tom yeah, Lehrer, yeah. our local hero.
0: Quite a tongue twister there.
1: That's right. And, and did you um, get any responses to the people who tried to blow a piece of paper into a bottle? I did. So, so the funny thing about this, I thought about this. If you're at a party doing that, you're either going to have everybody. Gathering around you and cheering you on? Are you going to be alone in the corner while they, like, play karaoke or something?
0: Yeah, Yeah. we... So uh, what
1: happened with that challenge? Well,
0: I'll just tell you the answer, and, you know, you, you, if you haven't done it yet, now you'll really be challenged to go out and see if I'm I'm lying. uh, But if you take a candle in a nice still room uh, and hold it uh, a little ways away from you with a nice... Yeah, we're getting into too much information for the last half minute of the show, but that song was a great way to end a year's worth of science and nature programs. Again, everybody, Happy New Year. Keep on trucking, and keep an eye on the sky, and we'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye-bye.